Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Musician's Journey podcast. I'm Ragnhild and I've been exploring the possibility of becoming a freelance cellist for a year and a bit. And as a part of that journey, I've reached out to musicians to hear their stories. Sometimes I talk to someone who triggers something of motivation or excitement in me. And other times I simply feel impressed by the hard work that has gone into their career. I also appreciate how I listen differently to their music when I've heard them talk about their approach to music making. I think I felt all of those things I just mentioned in this interview with Maya Solveig-Kjellstrup-Ratje. And there is something in particular she inspired me to work on, which I'll get back to at a later point, when I have hopefully gotten further in that particular process. And maybe she will inspire you too. The music accompanying this episode is from a recent project Maya did together with Katarina Baruch called Avant Joik, which is described on Maya's homepage as a work that blends Joik and vocal experimentation with an electronic experimental palette, evoking the eerie contemplative atmospheres of the north, while the turmoil and distortion of an untamed, forceful nature lurks beneath. struggled with that for a long time I had this feeling that I should be able to do it so I really tried and I went to some jazz improv for beginners and I've I've done a fair bit of free improvisation and I can really enjoy that but it was never an urge to make my own thing so now uh, I'm in my early 30s now and I can finally own the fact that I'm very happy with playing repertoire and playing others' compositions and to try to develop technique on my instrument. Yeah, great. It's very uh, traditional, yeah. I'm curious uh, because uh, it changes how you act in the world. Also, if you if you create your own projects, but I mean, you can also create your own projects by playing someone's music, of course, and you have to set, uh, put ensembles together and have pieces performed, pieces that you want to to hear and to play and stuff but when you create everything from scratch then uh, then it's a it's a little bit different uh, angle to it to your question about how you realize things and uh, how uh, <laughs> you uh, 
uh, sort of navigates in that in that music world also. Yeah, and uh, this is what you have been doing all the time. You've been making your own music. Yes, I, I consider myself a composer yeah. first of all, and then I also perform. So I perform a lot, but uh, then um, I perform mostly improvised music. So we are a bit uh, different, but we belong to the same uh, musical world. <laughs> so it has uh, pros and cons, both both ways of uh, go getting into the music scene, of course. Yeah. And um, you feel sometimes you feel very lonely also when you have to create your own things and when you compose and you are more isolated. But as soon as you are in touch with other musicians, then uh, really wonderful things can happen. And, and collaborations is uh, crucial for my musical development. Yeah. collaborations with musicians and uh, and also other composers and also people in other arts. Right, yes. Would you like to share how music making became a part of your life? Can you go back to the beginning, to how it how it started? <laughs> yeah, it, fe it feels like it's very unlinear. <laughs> yeah. It hasn't been a natural development in my music making from A to Z, but I've been uh, I've been interested in many sorts of so different musics since I was very little, and I wasn't deliberate about uh, becoming a musician until I was more like in almost twenty years old. I think I was quite late in it, and I had I didn't have music as a subject in the gymnasium or. Uh, I, I went to the cultural school, but I changed instruments all the time. I started with violin and then moved on to piano and then jazz piano and then jazz vocals. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I haven't been very focused in my early career as a musician, but very, I've been enjoying music, but I've been very broad. I participated in musicals and in bands uh, and uh, various things. I also played in the string orchestra and sang in a choir. So I've covered a lot of different sorts of music, except I think contemporary music, because that wasn't a part of my upbringing at all. And I, and I hadn't really heard it until I came across it uh, after gymnasium. I went to this uh, folk high school called Tuneheim Folkeskole, which you probably have heard of in Norway. Yes. It's quite famous for... Um, For gathering a lot of young musicians together, and some uh, some look upon it as a free year of rehearsing or practicing before they enter uh, higher studies in music. But I didn't have that in mind at all. Uh, I just wanted the free uh, space a year without uh, anyone measuring uh, if my tests were right or not. Yeah. <laughs> After having been into more scientific studies before that, so. I was happy to to have this free year and just to play, to to develop my hobby and to meet others who play them. But what happened in this uh, Tuneheim Folk High School was that I started to listen to contemporary music. We went to the symphony orchestra in Oslo, the whole school. We went to listen to a concert where Arne Norheim's music was played. And I was completely struck by it, the beauty of it and how it felt uh, so relevant. So I started to listen to more contemporary music at the music library. This was pre-internet, so yeah. <laughs> I just listened to uh, everything I came across, like Ligeti and Stockhaus, and, and, and after a while also uh, Senakis, Messiaen, Chelsea, and all those composers uh, have made a huge impact on my music thinking and I think I fell in love with music on a more serious level then. And that's why I also wanted to try to compose more and not only to make tunes, but, but to like to make real compositions. So I started to study composition as well. And after a couple of years, then uh, I got into the music academy to, to the composer department there. So that is the extract of how it went. And after that, You probably know. <laughs> well, yes, I've been reading a little bit. Uh, I found a list of 154 albums on your website. <laughs> <laughs> But I can so relate to that feeling of being exposed to contemporary music and how it really touches something different 
I had a crush on Schnittke's cello concertos when I came across them. And there was something so... I mean, they were late works. They were uh, from uh, the early 90s or late 80s. And they just spoke to me in a totally different way than the older repertoire. Like, there was a struggle in it that I couldn't really find in in earlier repertoire. And this feeling of living in a world that is kind of messed up and it's harder to make sense and to find oneself. And I was so enjoying that that particular struggle and I felt it when listening and I could relate to it and definitely projecting all my stuff onto it, but that's what we do, right? Mm, I so agree on that. that uh, that's how it felt listening to contemporary music compared to uh, playing the older classical music, which I also like a lot. But, but the contemporary music spoke to me directly. And uh, I could mirror my own uh, thoughts and feelings and questions in it. Not, um, not in a one-dimensional level, but the complexity of life, of reality, of what happens now. I found all those uh, elements in contemporary music. I found an art form that really spoke to the world as it is now. And that made me so. Um, uh, it made it made me feel belonging to something in music in the first for the first time, and it made me uh, welcome and interested, and and I, it made me want to participate. So it made me want to share as well. I couldn't resist getting ideas of my own, and I knew that I had to study composition and to learn how to write for instruments in order to to be a part of that. So I went in it with the head and tail. I don't, I don't know if that's the right expression, but I spent a lot of time and effort in order to become a composer quite quite late in in my upbringing. And, and I still feel that that has just happened, that choice that was yesterday. I was more impatient in the beginning, but now after having been a MF freelancer, having done this for 25 years, after uh, my studies, yeah. and uh, I'm not so impatient anymore. But, um, but I, I see that I can do this for the rest of my life, and I feel so lucky that I'm able to do it, and that I'm allowed to do it, and that I have collaborations that uh, make it possible for my music to be heard by someone. Yeah. When you threw yourself into composing, was there? Any kind of thought of making that into your living? Um, no, I, could, I didn't dare to think that. Because uh, I didn't come from a family background where where people studied art on that level. And, uh, and I wasn't encouraged much. I had to find that uh, courage in myself. And in the beginning, I, I was very afraid of, for example, spending money. And I took all sorts of day jobs and... Uh, didn't want to have a loan and was very afraid of how this would go. But I decided to give it a try and then carefully starting to make a living out of it. Uh, after a, about 10 years, I, I think I realized that it would be possible. Right. Can you describe a little more in detail how that process of those 10 years came to be? Because now you have this patchwork of a lot of different income streams it looks like a lot of different collaborations and projects and can you give a, a picture of how that process looked like to get into this to reach that stage yeah well good question i don't think i was very co conscious about it and um, i wasn't so uh, confident as i am now about choosing my projects so I, I think I would do a lot of things that weren't necessarily good for my career or good for me or <laughs> because I felt I had to do it or that I just was afraid of not getting enough work, maybe, uh, things like that. So I did a lot of stuff, but not all of it has been um, uh, so the best to focus on. <laughs> I can see that in the aftermath. But of course, all experience is in the end good experience because you learn so much from your failures as well as your, your successes. And I think the most important thing here is that uh, that you are devoted, that you are on it. And I was for sure uh, very on it for a long time. 
mm, almost on the edge of being manic, I think. <laughs> it helped to um, to get my own family <laughs> to have less focus on music all the time. Oh, right, right. And <laughs> so, uh, now, as we speak, uh, I live uh, in a house with uh, with my husband and two uh, teenage girls, and uh, that's really, really wonderful. Uh, I think uh, after those ten years, as when I started to look into my future, I thought, no, I can't, I can't live this um, this. Uh, intense life i have to slow down if i if i want to last <laughs> because then i really want to last i want to do this till i drop and uh, yeah it's not of course it's not of course that the reason why i got kids <laughs> but I, I see that it helps to have focus elsewhere yeah but you can have focus elsewhere in other things as well in nature, in friends, and uh, other activities. And uh, I think that's mentally important, that you're interested in other things as well. So I was not interested in anything else than music for a long time. Hmm. (laughs) I decided to go into music, and it's not very healthy. But but perhaps also that's also why I made uh, a career in the start, because I did that. I sacrificed so much in order to be there. Yeah. (laughs) Does it make sense? Yes. Uh, did you get some kind of a wake-up call then when you reached a point and realized that you had to also balance the music with other things in life? I think I did because I I started to get sleeping problems and that made me want to move out of the city center. Uh, so I did. I moved out to where I live now in Svartskog. Not the same house, but the same area. Together with uh, the my husband, so we were together since our student times. So he's been there all the time, like a cliff, <laughs> and also a musician. But um, having that change, like that, that perspective, and waking up in a place surrounded, where you're surrounded with nature, that uh, grounded me yeah. again. And um, after that, uh, like my focus on nature has also been very high. Also, environmental issues, and, and that didn't start then, but it uh, made a connection that uh, it can be a part of the art work as well, and uh, that helped. Just moving out—that was all that it took. Hmm. The kids came later, so a couple of years later. Yes, in the in the previous interview I did for this podcast with Isabel Anderson. Uh, we talked a little bit about where to draw the line between uh, one's activities as an artist and one's personal life, because she has been involved in political issues as an artist. Do you deliberately draw a line somewhere between what you keep to yourself and what you are out officially as, you know, as an artist when it comes to the climate and other things? Hmm. I feel that your your question is uh, asked in two levels. As a private person, I'm not sharing much. Right. I'm not uh, sharing my family life with the people on Facebook or anything like that. Uh, and in interviews, it's about me and my music. So I'm very I'm quite private, more than usual these times. Yeah. <laughs> but um, in a way, looking at art and life as a whole that is so that is actually essential also necessary to do i think mm-hmm. coming back to the experience of contemporary music being uh, where something is at stake where something is happening now when it speaks to us today the questions that we have the problems that we have the big conflicts and the internal conflicts and then you have to be uh, a whole person as an artist and a political person um, but there are levels within that <laughs> right. um, connecting politics to art can be done in so many different ways in some of my work that are more explicit uh, political then uh, work itself is used as a protest but sometimes I can take up for example the um, choir pieces that I wrote for uh, the Norske Jantegård, the Norwegian Girl Choir. The last piece there is about uh, climate and the loss of nature. 
the text is made by a uh, Norwegian-Swedish poet, Monika Osprum. It's called Cirkling. Uh, so that's a po- poetic way of handling politics and combining that with music, which which I prefer because then we can speak with our language, a musical language, which brings in emotions in multi-layers and complicates those problems and questions in a way that only art can, and then especially music. And music is our field, so we know that how complex it can be and it can make us feel so relieved but also agitated the way we express things like that in in art. Mm. And uh, I think I think that's wonderful because it really does both. It's soothing and frustrating, and that's how life is. It's not only one thing at a time. No. Can you say something about how music making has perhaps reflected your personal development as a human being? I mean, when thinking of the album Voice, which sounds like breaking free from something and challenging something. Mm. Yeah, voice is a response to uh, what I had already been exploring in the group Spunk. After performing with uh, this quartet Spunk for five years, and uh, I wanted to take uh, the voice out from that frame and look what I could do with the voice in ways that I hadn't heard a voice before. So the whole album voice is constructed of my own instrument, my voice, but it's treated electronically in different ways, together with Jon Hegren, Lasse Marug, in the duo Jaskommer at that time, who were co-producing the album. Uh, it's absolutely a document uh, of uh, liberating the voice, and also uh, a statement for me artistically, that uh, using the voice in such a way, and also how electronics are used in that album, that is a statement for me, that this is Uh, equally important as writing scores because uh, I had just been finished my uh, studies at the music academy as a composer and focusing a lot on scores and getting some nice attention for that as well. I felt that the other part, the the part of uh, being an instrumentalist and using my voice that wasn't looked upon as serious in the same way. Hmm. So it was was also a a way of uh, just stating that for me, that this is equally important. And uh, the voice album got uh, reached out very, very wide due to Rune Gramophone, the label, and his uh, his promotion work there. So uh, it, uh, it made a platform for me as a performer. So I got a lot of um, activities based on having released that album. Right. <laughs> and uh, also because it's considered a solo album, I also see that it gets like more attention than other things when I collaborate on equal terms with someone, which is a bit, it says something about them, <laughs> the music business, I guess, but it's like more focused on an artist, especially a female artist, when someone does something alone as a solo artist, that that's supposed to be like more, uh, as it is more meaningful and the collaborations where you are drawing more in the background as a person, but music is the important thing here <laughs> to me. Yeah. So the the collaborative work in Spunk, which is still running actually, we had the 25 years anniversary two years ago. Wow. <laughs> that has been uh, the most uh, the most valuable collaboration for me as a performer. Yeah. And also affected the way I, I compose and make artworks. So it consists of four women playing together. We are also composers. This is uh, Lena Grenager, a cellist, yeah. and Hild Sofia Tafjur, a horn player, and Kristin Andersen Hövin, who plays recorders and uh, trumpet, and me, and voice and various. So I must say, in the beginning, when we pl- played with Spunk, we were still uh, studying at the Music Academy, not together, but in, in different classes, and Hild was in the jazz department. So no one was playing that kind of music. <laughs> so we... Mm-hmm. It felt uh, like groundbreaking. At that time, we didn't have many references around us. Also because we didn't have a band format. We drummed some bass and keyboards and that, so we sounded so different. So we drew on what we had heard in contemporary music, as well as in jazz and folk music from the whole world. And We were inspired by Pippi Longstocking, the character in Astrid Lindgren, who uh, invents the word spook in one of our books, 
<laughs> so that's where it comes from, actually. It's uh, Swedish. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was uh, an inspiring approach to go looking for something that you don't know yet what is. Right. So the titles for our first albums, they are quotes by uh, Pippi Longstocking. The first is, The only thing I know is that it isn't a vacuum cleaner. That is the first album title. Yeah. And on from that. Yes, but it seems to be a bigger world now. At least um, that's my impression when I've been talking to musicians on this podcast and then getting a, a glimpse into these different worlds. It seems like I, I feel like I live in a multiverse where uh, there is this huge uh, mainstream of like uh, hit pop songs and playlists, very visible. But but uh, in addition to that, there are these uh, really big areas of uh, various genres and ways of exploring music and. It seems to me that this um, this kind of genre-defying, contemporary, improvised, explorative way of making music is now quite a bit of a universe of its own. Absolutely, and there are so many good performances. So this has happened over the last uh, 20 years, and yeah. it's really wonderful. Uh, Oslo was famous for having a good scene for those kind of collaborative uh, works between uh, uh, musicians uh, with different backgrounds. Uh, it grew uh, around this club in Oslo called Blåa for some time where DJs were playing together with jazz musicians and then noise musicians and contemporary musicians. But it's not a, it's not a local phenomenon either. You, you see a, a huge scene where people are collaborating naturally across old boundaries for uh, for decades and it's really wonderful and also of course it's not it's not hitting the mainstream media <laughs> much no. but it's very it's very large and more and more people can make a living in this field as well but we still have to see where where the money goes because the on the official side of what is supported with cultural budgets in in countries is still the main and big institutions that get uh, like I don't know how much, but it's a really really small amount. Like that goes to the free arts. We have to be very aware that we are supporting free arts because it's so much happening in the free arts that also affects uh, the uh, evolving of the uh, of the uh, contemporary music in the big institutions. Do you wish? musicians would be more aware and more engaged in, in like politically in that sense to try to put pressure on politicians to continue to fund free arts mm, I, I would rather see that musicians are concerned about the bigger things not to their own cultural support but they're mm. more involved in peace movement or environmental issues if they want to be visible politically yeah, but it's a uh, it's absolutely on the agenda and we need to be aware of it, how fragile it is, how easy it is to cut down the funding of the free arts. Yeah. We don't want it to end up like it is in the US where if you want to make a living as a contemporary artist then you have to be connected to a university. So we don't need to have that in Norway. In Norway we have Kultura, which is supporting a lot of free arts and that is a, that is a very important institution where it uh, yeah, encourages new forms of collaborations, not the existing ones. We need culture that challenges us. And and uh, artists who are in, in this free art field, working with contemporary music in different ways, the best thing you could do there is to make your artistic statements to show how important art is just by, also by doing it and do, being your best and giving it. Giving uh, artwork to people that they don't know that they want, but they, yeah. <laughs> they find out that it's changing their lives. Yes, you know, super important. Yeah. Do you find you have time to both be in touch with what you are doing as an artist and to be in touch with what others are doing as artists? Oh, I feel that like, uh, it's much more hard to. Uh, to follow the art scene when I live outside of the city center yeah. and also when I 
uh, I need to travel quite a lot in my work. So it's more, um, yeah, it can be a bit random what I come across. I try to follow things, but uh, sometimes I haven't heard about the new things that I should have heard about. And it surprises me so much. It's impossible to keep track also because it's so many good, great people out there and great artworks on it. Uh, I, I have a bad uh, consciousness for that, that I'm not able to keep track of everything <laughs> like I used to do in the beginning. Right. I don't know if you feel that sometimes. <laughs> you wish you could go to concerts every day and oh, it's not possible. <laughs> no, I, there is absolutely no time for that. I have to prioritize having a quiet evening at home sometimes. And it would be really easy to fill up my whole schedule with with things uh, because yeah i i live in a big city so there are there are so many things happening so that's a challenge for me maybe it's possible to kind of schedule it if you if i just in the beginning of the week take a look at what's happening this week and then i can maybe pick one thing hmm, i think that's smart to do a little planning ahead i have to do that in in order to, to go to things. Yeah. Yesterday I went to the theater, but I was with uh, my family, so it was my husband who booked tickets. We went to National Theater, yeah. <laughs> the big institution theater, yeah. and because it's a free group that is called the, the Utvalgte, who put up uh, play Brannen, the flyer, based on a novel by Tadja Vesos, and it was really, really wonderful. And I, I told uh, Frode, my husband, uh, on the way home, that I was... It's been such a longing now to see such a contemporary work on the big stage. I can't recall last time I saw a scene, mm. a huge scale performance of something that was so contemporary. <laughs> it was a really amazing performance, so well done. When you then go to, say, a theater piece that you really like, do you then also feel like you have to uh, consciously work with it and integrate it somehow? Or do you then leave it and go on with your things yeah because uh, <laughs> as a student when you are curious about things you you find yourself analyzing everything too much <laughs> but now when i put that behind and i i go there as an audience yeah. on equal terms as other people in the in the room just want to explore i want to lean back and see how the art interacts with me and and to go on to that journey of course, I might. I don't have much prejudice when I go to contemporary art, which helps, of course. Yeah. So when I when I talk to relatives who are not in contemporary art, and if they say, "No, it's so hard to understand," I think you just have to say say to them, "Just you just go. It's, you have your ears, and you just explore. Yeah. It's uh, nothing is required from you." <laughs> like, yeah. And even though if you don't like enjoy it completely, you can just see see how it affects you. <laughs> I got a lot of ordinary days during COVID, <laughs> meaning that I am home. 
but a lot of my normal days are also uh, being involved in projects that uh, require that I wake up uh, somewhere else and I work in hours that are not considered normal hours and stuff like that. But an ordinary day at home is to get up with my kids in the morning before they go to school. And then uh, then I work in my home studio. This is my home studio where we are now, yeah. where I have uh, composer tools and speaker systems and all that I need for different kinds of work. And then uh, I try to compose some hours every day. <laughs> right now I'm starting on a choir piece from for a festival in Lucerne. And still most of my commissioners are from abroad. So it's uh, I'm more relying on the, the international art scene being able to subsidize me. And then um, after a while, then the kids come back from school and they're they have some activities that I need to follow up. <laughs> so the day goes quite fast, but the work time is actually now. <laughs> yeah. Do you plan the week ahead? Like, do you have a book where you take some notes on what to focus on that or that day? And do you schedule in some time for, I don't know, some physical exercise or whatever else you do to keep healthy? I don't schedule in anything that I do just myself. Then I just take the time when I have it, when it's when I have my time to choose. Yeah. But I get out every day as I live in outside, mm-hmm. <laughs> almost. <laughs> um, that's really important for me yeah. to go out. It's something I also enjoy when when we have vacations. Then we go hike on hiking trips with the family. Mm. This old-fashioned Norwegian-style hiking, very low budget, not uh, much luxus, <laughs> but and going to different parts of the mountainous areas in Norway, which is great too. Because then I really feel that then my brain is off the more practical side of working, and I get a lot of inspiration from that. Mm. I feel revitalized when I come back to compose again. Can it ever be hard for you to compose when you have your work hours? Mm, yes, of course. When, uh, when I know that I have uh, a free day, like from uh, eight till three or something, and it's not uh, it's not super easy to um, yeah to deliver something artistically when you have to invent something new, but. I have something to work with most of the time, which helps that I'm working with some texts or some chords or just by working with it. Then uh, sometimes I find things that I can build uh, from. <laughs> so it helps to be in the process, even though I don't really know where it where it's going to take me. When I've been um, composing on a piece for a while, then it floats more naturally. Then it's easier. Then I can just sit down and start where I was the day before. Because in the beginning of a process, it's much harder. <laughs> so the house is much cleaner in the beginning of a process than later on. <laughs> yeah. When you work home, then you shouldn't be too distracted about uh, like the sink not being you know empty and things like that. You, you just have to. Sometimes you have to deliberately focus on your own work. Mm. It's uh, it's always. Uh, indefinitely like the amount of work that you can do besides music that's true I don't even have kids but there is always I I often feel like in the morning making sure something is clean or tidy and then I can have some peace of mind to do some work Uh, (laughs) and it, it can be hard to skip that cleaning part if I see that I want to clean the kitchen or something then it can be hard to decide to go and work instead it helps also to share those uh, responsibilities with someone yeah yeah and also having a partner who is a musician it it helps a lot because his understanding of my work and vice versa yeah it's uh, it's so it's also important it would be hard to be with someone who to live with someone who doesn't understand that when you just have to go and work on something (laughs) When you have to prioritize that, and, and sometimes you don't work for a whole day, then you are ju- just uh, giving everything to your family instead. But you, you take and you give. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about the way that music is listened to today with this dominance of streaming platforms? Hmm. 
I have problems with streaming platforms still, not being used to it. When I got into listening, then uh, I listen to music in other formats. I'm still not friends with it. <laughs> I find it highly problematic also, the way that logarithms are uh, making our kind of music more and more invisible. I have uh, come uh, friendly with uh, Bandcamp, which I like a lot, yeah. which is more artist-based and um, also a way of actually paying artists for their music yeah. compared to other streaming platforms. But I must say I like the physical object a lot, still. Mm. <laughs> and this nostalgic return of the vinyl, it, that suits me as well. Yeah. I have uh, some releases lately that are solely on vinyl and Bandcamp, but not on Spotify and all those other things. But there's... Yeah, there's a lot of work that is not intended for you know, listening as a music file either. I, when I write for orchestra, for example, it's, it's not released on anything, but you have to be there in the concert. So the concert format is, to me, like the most valuable place of exploring music, even though I have all these records, as you say. But <laughs> most of them are collaborations, but a lot of them are with my main projects as well. But um, I think... Uh, <laughs> I've discovered more and more, especially during the COVID time, how important concerts are. Mm. So for musical communication, that's where it happens. And you have to be there in the same room. So then I'm less focused on having everything recorded and released. It's, it's less important than actually to create a space where people can be in the same room, performing and listening to what is happening together. Yes. We're in this together. Mm. This, this is where it is. Yeah. Music is so strong when it's performed by living people, and it's it's like uh, it's it draws associations to maybe how music was formed thirty, forty thousand years ago. Yeah, together with language, when there was time to do that around the fireplace, or mm. it brings back something very human and very old in us. Yes. I'm now uh, thinking of together with a friend of mine to try to arrange some kind of open stage gatherings in the suburb that we live in outside of Stockholm or yeah outside of the city center of Stockholm anyway because there is not a lot of concerts happening in the area where I live there is not much happening and it feels like people are listening to music on Spotify and when some big star comes, they go to an arena to see them. Mm. Yeah, but well, that's sad because it's so much you can. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. So I was thinking uh, to make a space for people who don't necessarily even consider themselves musicians, but there are so many people who enjoy making music and maybe don't really have a place to perform it to someone else. So to, to find a place and to invite anyone who would like to play anything and we can all play for each other. Uh, but I don't have experience with taking initiatives. It's really hard for me to come over this, to cross this barrier of reaching out and researching what are the venues possible and to ask people if we can use that venue. Like, how do you do? You have any tips on how to get into this mm. this project? Oh, I performed in so many spaces like this during the years, and it's so much good work being done in that field. How people have collaborated with small galleries, for example, or community houses or bars or. And after a while, these places sometimes become very important to the music scene. In Oslo, you have this place called Café Hardwerk, for example. And I was, this fall, I was in London in a place called Eclectic, which was, uh, which was a, like, a place like this, like a community-owned place with artists uh, being involved in all, in all levels. And, and uh, I was in England for some other project. But I, I played at this place, Eclectic, with a friend of mine. And we play for the door and things like that. But it's really about the art and uh, packed with people and sharing experiences. And really, really wonderful. And concerts every day and people are super connected to this place. 
where nothing else is happening in the surrounding neighborhood, nothing like that. So it just pops up. <laughs> it, I mean, if you're able to do something like that in the suburbs of Sweden, I think that would be really, really great. Yeah. But uh, that just started like a super low budget thing that it's about sharing. That's something you can do besides your other professional work. I think it, that's the way how to start it and then you can build up from that. Yeah. I made a poster about it that was like the only thing i felt i can do straight away that would make it seem more real <laughs> so i was you know pretending i have a venue and how would i make the poster for it that i would put up on the notice boards in the area <laughs> uh, so just like starting with the smallest thing what can i do right now and then i can build on it so yeah we'll see we'll see i think now that the sun is coming and spring is coming there is this energy of doing something new and to get out there and that's really wonderful if you manage to do that yeah wow. i really wish you luck that would be important for your local environment <laughs> yeah yeah we'll see we'll see what happens why not contacting uh, not only musicians but uh, poets for example also poets to yeah get, uh, somewhere a mix of uh, people that's a really good idea What does it mean to you to be a musician? To be a musician means that I can be in the music when it happens. That I can be in touch with the, the surroundings when I play. And that is, also of course, the audience and the room and the other musicians. If I play with someone, it means that I am in the moment where your time is not measured with a this uh, clock that you see here on the screen mm. or carry with you on your phone time is different when you are in in the music and that experience is something i would never be without being a composer mm. when you are performing you are you are uh, able to be in the moment fully and at the same time reflecting on what has happened and also curious about what can happen so you are in all these layers at the same time yeah <laughs> which is really wonderful and it's so challenging <laughs> yeah. but it's all about communication communication with your own ideas and with the audience and with the room hmm. i feel i have something to give that's why i want to play i have something on my heart i, I can't define it but i have to play it Beautiful. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Where would you like people to see what you are doing as an artist? I have a functioning homepage, which helps a lot when uh, it's hard for people to grasp what I'm doing because I'm operating so broad yeah. with so many expressions from string chords to noise performances. So it's definitely broad. Mm. <laughs> Uh, my home page is just my last name, R-A-T-K-J-E dot com, where you can find recordings and works, links to all that. Did you know that I wrote a book as well? I was looking for it before you came. There's one here. <laughs> this one. Yes, I saw that on your website. So this came out in 2013. Um, it's a lot about what I spoke about here about my story about coming into the music is also included in this book uh -huh. but uh, here is um, it's a view on uh, how uh, being a female in a very male-dominated field yeah. has also formed how I think about music and I try to ask some questions about what can be done 
to include more. The why is it so that the avant-garde, where everything is supposed to be open and free, is still so dominated by men? Hmm. It, it is changing. So it's been better after I wrote the book, not because of the book, but it's it's slowly changing. But to me, it goes not fast enough. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> is there an English version of the book as well? No, it's not. It's only in Norwegian. Okay. Okay. But it's possible to read it online, I think, mm-hmm. through the publisher. Yeah. You saw the title. Yeah. I was saying seen it before. Experimental Kvinneglum. Experimental Kvinneglum. I wouldn't even know how to say that in experimental. Oh, the glum is uh, a wordplay on doggy barking, so it's quite uh, bad actually. Ah. Female like barking, and this—that's right. uh, a quote. It's—it uh, was used as a title of a review of a concert that I did with one of the women in speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, we can use that as a title for the book. And as and it's because I'm doing the same in the book, I'm barking all the way along the 120 pages. <laughs> <laughs> Thought it was fitting. <laughs> Female dog barking, indeed. Let's continue to raise our barking and express ourselves through our voices and music. I feel honored to have had Maya Aratje and Isabel Anderson on this podcast for the month of March. And I make this podcast to share conversations with you, whoever you are, so thank you for listening. See the show notes for the relevant links, and if you feel like sharing your response to this episode, you can comment on the post on Instagram, where there is an account called The Musician's Journey Podcast, and you can also write me an email. Or comment on the post for this episode on my page on Coffee, where it's possible to also support me with a one-time tip or monthly. Coffee is spelled ko-fi.com and you can search for the Musician's Journey podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You are also welcome to write me and recommend a musician you know who you think would have a story to share with all of us, or perhaps you want to recommend yourself. I'll also make sure to say that I've put together a playlist on Spotify called The Musician's Journey Podcast with music by some of the guests who have shared their journeys here. And if you hear something you really like, please consider supporting them in any way. There are so many ways of doing that these days, such as purchasing their music through Bandcamp, attending a live performance, buying their books or LPs or t-shirts or whatever they have to offer, or taking the time to engage with their presence in social media. This is now a bi-weekly podcast, so I'll be back in April. Meanwhile, good luck on your journey and take care.